If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Atif Qureshi. He is the Global VP of Emerging Practices, which is AI and deep learning at Think Big, which is a Teradata company. He holds a BS in physics and math from University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and an NS in distributed computing from the Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the show, Atif. Oh, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. So I always like to start off by just asking you to define artificial intelligence. Yeah, definitely uh, an important definition, one that um, uh, unfortunately is, is overused and uh, stretched in many different ways. Uh, here at Think Big, we actually have a very specific definition within the enterprise. Uh, but before I give that, you know, um, for me in particular, when I think of intelligence, you know, uh, that conjures up, uh, an, you know, the ability to understand, the ability to reason, uh, the ability to learn. And, um, you know, we usually equate that to biological systems or, or living entities. And now with the rise of probably more appropriate machine intelligence, um, you know, we're, we're applying the term artificial to it. And, and the rationale is probably because machines aren't living and they're not biological systems. So with that, um, the way the way we define AI in particular is leveraging machine and deep learning really to drive towards a specific business outcome. And it's it's about giving leverage for human workers to enable higher degrees of assistance and higher degrees of automation. And when when we define AI in that way, we actually give it three characteristics. And so those three characteristics are the ability to sense and learn. And so that's, uh, you know, being able to understand massive amounts of data and demonstrate continuous learning and and detecting patterns and signals within uh, the noise, if you will. The second is being able to reason and infer. And that is, uh, you know, driving intuition and, and inference with increasing accuracy, again, to maximize a business outcome or a business decision. And then ultimately, it's about deciding and acting. So, you know, actioning or automating um, a decision based on everything that's understood to drive towards um, more informed activities that uh, are based on sort of corporate intelligence, if you will. So, so that's kind of how we view uh, AI in particular. Well, I, I applaud you for for having given it so much thought, and there's a lot there to unpack. Uh, You talked about intelligence being, it's about understanding and reasoning and learning. You actually think, and and that was even in your, um, your your three areas, do you believe machines can reason? Um, You know, over time, we're going to start to, you know, apply algorithms and specific models to, the, the the concept of reasoning. And so the ability to understand, the ability to learn uh, are things that we're going to express in sort of mathematical terms, no doubt. Um, in terms of 
you know, does it give it human lifelike characteristics? You know, that that's still something to be determined. Well, I, I don't I don't mean to be difficult with the definition because as as you point out, most people aren't particularly rigorous when it comes to it. But but if if it's to drive an outcome, take a, a cat a cat food dish that refills itself when it's low. Uh, it can sense, it can reason that it shouldn't put more food in, and then it can act and release a mechanism that refills the food dish. Is that AI and your understand of how when you think about it? And if not, why isn't that AI? Yeah, I mean, I think in some sense it, it checks a lot of the boxes. Um, but the but the reality is is uh, being able to adapt and uh, and and understand what's occurring. You know, for instance, if that cat is coming out during certain times of the day, ensuring that um, you know that that meals are prepared in in the right way and that they don't you know sit out and and become stale or become um, you know, uh, spoiled in, in any way. And, and, and that is signs of a more, uh, intelligent type of capability that is, uh, learning the, the behaviors and, uh, anticipating, um, how best to respond given, um, a, a specific, uh, outcome it's driving toward. Gotcha. So now to, to, to take that definition, your company is think big. Uh, what do you think big about? What is think big and what do you do? Yeah, so uh, a little, um, you know, uh, looking back in history a little bit, uh, think big was actually an acquisition that Teradata had done several years ago um, in the big data space, um, in particular around open source and Hadoop consulting. And over time, Teradata had made several acquisitions and now, um, you know, we've unified all of those uh, various acquisitions into a into a unified group um, called Think Big Analytics, and so what we're particularly focused on is how do we drive business outcomes using advanced analytics and data science, and um, and we do that through a, a blend of approaches and and techniques uh, and technology, frankly, um, and and my group in particular we're focused on AI and deep learning. So we're working with you know large enterprise customers and enabling them to let's say do um, better uh, manufacturing, uh, reducing scrap, improving yield, for instance. And how do you apply computer vision, for instance, to that uh, fabrication process? Is one example. So you know a lot of the challenges that we see, um, you know, or I should say, a lot of the progress we see in research and applied research. We definitely consider those, uh, but we have to understand how that would work uh, in an uh, enterprise setting that may be constrained in different ways, that may have different types of um, talent requirements, technology requirements, um, policy, regulatory requirements. All of those things have to be considered. So uh, the listeners to this show love to hear about use cases, successes or failures when trying to apply AI to a business problem to affect an outcome. Uh, it sounds like that's your bread and butter. Can you give us, um, tell, us a, tell us a war story or two of, of something you've, you've done, a, a problem that was brought to you, how you applied data to it, how you applied AI to it, and what the outcome was? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there's, uh, as you can imagine, some customers are very vocal and open and transparent about 
um, you know, when they engage with um, outside um, cons consultancies. And uh, there's various motivations for either talking about those engagements or not. One motivation for talking about that is to, you know, um, definitely be uh, seen as um, innovators and, and driving success in new ways of thinking to the benefit of their own organization or to their customers. Now, uh, on the other side, sometimes those capabili capabilities may be a distinct competitive advantage. And so customers are very hesitant to even, you know, allow companies to mention that they're working together. So, you know, some, some customers that have allowed us to speak in very great detail about the engagement that we've done with them is, is in the areas of retail banking. And so, um, you know, we kind of see uh, two major flavors of, uh, uh, of engagements. And one is really around reducing cost. Uh, and that could be um, to uh, automate aspects of uh, business processes. So for instance, um, for loan origination or when we go to apply for a car loan or a mortgage, we have to go into a bank per se and fill out applications and uh, share um, deeds and salary statements and other types of um, information that allows the underwriter to make a decision, a risk-based decision on whether to issue us credit or not. And so uh, machine and deep learning can be applied in actually all aspects of that process. So number one, just the uh, origination and onboarding of those various documents and doing the, the checks uh, of completeness and being able to understand the associated documents um, can be done by a machine. And so, and I'm not talking just OCR kind of very straightforward NLP tactics. Um, there's aspects of, you know, perception in the sense of not all salary statements look the same or check stubs look the same or titles and deeds look the same. And so being able to um, understand, have a machine understand through different computer vision techniques, you know, uh, what those documents are and classify them and then be able to do uh, certain types of processing. So that's uh, on the onboarding. Once you move into the risk and underwriting uh, decisioning, being able to uh, express a very high dimensional feature space uh, of, uh, of your risk portfolio and not just use pooled risk constructs, which is typically what banks and insurances do today, but really moving towards micro-segmentation where you're looking at an individual, you're looking at their portfolio in particular, and potentially understanding um, you know, what's the risk for default and what have you by looking at the entire corpus, but you're not looking at it in the aggregate. You're looking at that individual and applying very distinct um, wide and deep networks to, to make those decisions. Okay. And then finally, on servicing and operating the loan, uh, a lot of work that we've been doing in the fraud space. So, um, you know, you will always have for any um, capability out there, you will always have adversaries that are looking to exploit it for nefarious purposes. And that could be, you know, insider threat or that could be external actors. So a lot of work in different types of fraud mechanisms in insurance, uh, in money laundering, in credit cards and digital payments. 
And what's fascinating is that deep learning has shown great success in, again, being able to take uh, very large feature spaces, very large dimensionality, and be able to detect different types of signals around anomalies. And, um, and that's the essence of what transaction monitoring systems do, let's say, in anti-money laundering. Uh, that's the essence of what credit card authorization systems do uh, when they look to approve or deny a credit card transaction. And um, that has been really fascinating for us to see those capabilities uh, and work with our customers to push those capabilities into production. And what that means is that you have to consider all of the privacy, legal, reg compliance issues like GDPR, like fair credit lending, like um, the, the various policies that you have to uh, align to. And that's where a lot of the explainability or interpretability aspects come into play around uh, these black box models. Yeah, talk a little bit about that last bit, because a lot of times those systems use unsupervised learning and they're, they're, they're looking at some data space and they're clustering and they're finding finding pockets in that data of people in the past who have defaulted or were fraudulent or what have you. And then, you know, the, the explainability may simply be you're in a cluster of people that are prone to default. How do you, how do you kind of thread that needle and, and make it a robust system that's also, like you said, compliant and explainable and all the rest? Yeah, a lot of times what you'll see, I mean, um, very rarely are we talking about, you know, uh, one model, right? Um, these are these are usually ensembles or stacks of models. Uh, in some instances, that could go into the hundreds. Okay, so being able to coordinate all this is is a key critical aspect. Um, but uh, there there's different techniques for explainability. So, for instance, some enterprises will use um, traditional machine learning um, decision trees, boosted decision trees. Um, to express certain concepts, and that's well understood by, let's say, regulators, okay, and, and that they have technique for documenting and, and expressing how certain decisions were, are, are made. And then they'll leverage deep learning to essentially do latent feature extraction. So, you know, derive new features from these neural networks that will then be put into a traditional machine learning model so that they don't have to worry about how to make the, the neural network itself explainable. And so there's a certain class of approaches and pros and cons with doing that. Another approach, which is something that, uh, that we've done, is how do you drive interpretability into the deep neural network itself? And so there's, uh, there's a whole science of this space. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we've used uh, different types of open source frameworks out there that allow us to do interpretations um, and, you know, perturbative techniques that essentially say, if I, um, you know, if I uh, include noise into this model and be able to express, um, you know, the amount of variance and the amount of uh, contribution that these features have ultimately to an output, let's say a, a classification decision, then I can understand which features of the model are influencing uh, that output the most. And that's a technique to then say, you know, which features 
from a, in a in a probabilistic ways are the ones that are contributing the most. And so that's important. Let's say if you're making a determination of um, fraud, going back to our example, that you can that you can cite that you know because you're associated with this actor or this this certain amount or coming from this geography or you know other types of attributes about the transaction. Um, that's that's the level of expression that you need for uh, you know to pass, let's say GDPR or some other sort of uh, audit and um, policy uh, definition. So I'm I'm curious. I mean, I really think about this particular question a whole lot because I mean, I guess because it's so germane as well. But I think of a think of a search engine, and you know, one of the big ones, and you go to them and say, you know, I, I sell widgets and for the search widget sellers, I'm number eight and my competitor's number seven. Why are they higher than me? That's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Even with all the techniques you have, because there may be a thousand variables at play, right? That's right. And, you know, um, uh, maybe for the audience, I should kind of just cite a little bit of my background. Um, the, the first half of my career was actually focused on two very scientific agencies. One was uh, NASA. Uh, and as part of that, with the Earth Observing System, uh, we launched a, a satellite called Terra, AM1. And that had many sort of scientific instruments that started to determine uh, global warming and other sort of uh, phenomenons uh, of the atmosphere and what have you. And then, and then I worked very closely in the intelligence community, uh, hence the conversation of artificial intelligence, um, and built, you know, sophisticated um, systems and uh, and capabilities to to serve the nation in different ways. And so, at the crux of those was, you know, those were very mathematical and engineering oriented missions, and being able to take vast arrays of data and help with decisioning. And what was clear is that just these techniques of in interpretability is never enough. And so, um, you know, there's, there's all these concepts that eventually, you know, really lead to traceability, right? So when uh, a system or frankly, when a human makes a decision, you want to be able to express what's influencing those decisions. And so, you know, that's naturally traceability. And so data lineage and, and data pedigree uh, uh, all come into play and being able to ensure that there's trust in the system. So information security and uh, authorization are, are also key aspects. And then every time that that data has been touched or manipulated or models have applied algorithms on top of that, you want to understand that at some level. Now, clearly in a very complex system, you don't want the you know the 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 user of that system to be inundated with all of this complexity, but uh, allowing that information to come forward in the right way is going to be more and more critical because what what's really going to allow AI to thrive or not is going to be about trust, right? Because if all of this sophistication and understanding is being pushed into machines humans ultimately need to understand aspects of that and trust that system that it's going to do the right thing on behalf of, you know, a certain decision and decisions could include potential loss of life. 
So, you know, um, there, there are risk-oriented types of missions that have to obviously be considered. So how do you think all of that's going to shake out? Do you think we're going to have something like GDPR in the U.S.? I think fundamentally, I think it's in, inevitable. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think as this technology and AI becomes more pervasive and immersive in our lives, uh, you know, we're going to experience the, the benefits of that. And, and frankly, we're going to experience the downsides of that. So, um, you know, having the right levels of control and considerations around privacy and ethics. Um, those are always an afterthought for uh, a lot of organizations, but, you know, things, uh, will, will, those types of um, enabling capabilities will be more uh, prevalent uh, and more important as we move forward. So you're primarily interested, your company is primarily interested in helping enterprises adopt this technology to drive a certain outcome. What, what enterprises would you advise the time is right for you to, to start thinking about this? Is there a size threshold or a market sector? Or if, if somebody who's listening now, do they say, is it still early for my company to um, start tackling all of these issues? Or, or is making better decisions never something you want to put off? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. Uh, the reality is I think every industry has the opportunity to take advantage of AI. Um, but that doesn't mean every organization is in the right is in the right position to capitalize on that. And so what I mean by that is, you know, there is degrees of sophistication that are needed to really uh, embrace this technology, but there are, you know, there are key building blocks that have been solved along the way that allow us to do this quickly and rapidly. So uh, obviously, you know, the accessibility of the cloud um, gives us the compute storage network uh, to be able to onboard these capabilities very quickly. Uh, but that's not always an option for all enterprises, for data gravity issues, for cost considerations, what have you. Um, but if you were to ask me which industries are the most ripe, uh, I think, um, it's definitely uh, the industries of manufacturing, uh, financial services and insurance, uh, comms media entertainment, so uh, telcos and uh, and automotive in particular. Uh, and the reason I say those things is twofold. One, uh, they all have you know heavy investments in digitization efforts that have been going on, and and data is is the fundamental of uh, of machine and deep learning. So. Having access to that is, of course, important. Uh, but two is that they're all being disrupted in different ways. And so disruption uh, is a key motivator for these organizations to really think differently about their business model. And so, you know, uh, a lot of times we, you know, we'd like to believe that organizations and enterprises have really smart people at the top who think about futures and and how to take advantage and um, serve their customers or you know their constituents and shareholders in the best way and and no doubt that that's true but what uh, motivates them even more is when there's a competitive threat and so uh, we know what's happening in the automotive and autonomous space 
And so there's so much spend and investment across all of the OEMs and tier one suppliers to really go after connected mobility and autonomous in a, in a much bigger way. And, and of course, at the center of autonomous is, is really deep learning at scale. And so that's why there's so much pace of spend and really innovation occurring in those industries. And the same that's happening in financial services, the same that's happening in, in comms media uh, and what have you. And then, you know, a close second for, for us in particular is probably healthcare life, uh, life sciences uh, and retail. And, you know, a lot of folks may say that retail, life sciences, healthcare is, is probably where a lot of the spend is happening. And that's true. But I would say that's not where a lot of the innovations are happening. And again, the reason is because a lot of the reg compliance and ethical and, and policy aspects uh, within the healthcare and life uh, healthcare and life sciences space is um, is modulating those successes. Do you know the 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 story of the the guy in Japan that wrote the program and built the device to sort cucumbers? Do you know that one? I don't know. Okay, so his mom and dad had this cucumber farm, and uh, and he noticed his mom would spend all day. Sorting cucumbers based on on four factors by their size or shape, their color, and and how spiny they are, because some are worth more than others. And he looked at it and he said, you know, uh, well, basically he used TensorFlow and a Raspberry Pi and uh, an Arduino and all this stuff, and he built this thing that sorts these cucumbers by size and shape and color and all that. Now. That's an you know it's it's a fun example it's a true story, and and that's probably you know you you might have to do some math to figure out if that was a good use of that person's time because of the scope of the problem, but I guess that's what I'm trying to get at is if I'm a hundred person company and I manufacture something, or if I'm a should I wait until there are products that are made that I can buy and implement that use these technologies, or or is it to the point that the platforms are easy enough to use that company X can actually solve its own problems without packaged software, SaaS solutions or something? Does that make sense? It, it does. And, and in fact, going back to the cucumber example, one of our uh, customers that I've been talking very closely with does something very similar except with potatoes. And so we talked about uh, essentially uh, you know, how do you apply uh, these same techniques to help um, r- reduce the the scrap associated with potatoes? And you would think um, potatoes from farm to table or, you know, to your neighborhood McDonald's is a pretty straightforward process. It's actually a very complex one. And, um, you know, there, there's already techniques of computer vision within that manufacturing space. Uh, but those edge devices are very rudimentary. And so really the opportunity for applying more sophisticated AI is to understand all of the upstream implications of when when and how you buy potatoes with um, the downstream implications of how much waste it produces when your potatoes are bad or irregular shaped or are diseased. And how do you influence potentially, you know, soil composition 
and other types of agronomy types of considerations, that's really where, where I think the opportunities are. Now, is that reachable per se for um, a small to medium-sized business? Um, it's difficult for me to answer because I, I don't typically, and, and we don't typically engage with those types of, um, uh, with those types of uh, customers. Uh, but I, I think between the frameworks, uh, the cloud-based environments, uh, and the knowledge that's out there, it's becoming more and more accessible to get GPU compute, to be able to build data pipelines of, of imagery types of data to label that uh, and be able to build and train models uh, and deploy that. But it's still somewhat complex. And so, you know, I think where the biggest breakthroughs in AI for, 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 uh, for the enterprise, I believe, is in applying AI techniques to model building, data acquisition, data labeling, all those things that make it really hard to do this uh, in a in a much more agile and uh, expeditious way, and so if we're able to acquire and land data and label it and build models in sort of an auto ML sort of fashion, do that hyperparameter optimizations and sweeps, and then be able to deploy this seamlessly into an operational environment and do hundreds of models like this very rapidly, then I think that's where really we're gonna see the pace and innovation of AI pick up. So are there any rules of thumb you use, let's say enterprise hex, and they're large and you know, they, they manufacture and they, they have logistics and they have, I mean, they have all of this stuff. How do you, and they say, we want to start using these techniques to improve our business. How do you start looking around? Do you say, well, show me, let's talk about all the data you have, or let's talk about where you think the most waste is, or let's talk about things that look like games, because computers, uh, AI can play games well because they're constrained universes. Like, how does that conversation begin with somebody who says, you know, where do I start? And again, we're talking about a large enterprise that could do anything. Yeah, uh, another great question. And and so really we see two, two types of opportunities. One, where you have uh, an executive buyer and that executive buyer usually <laughs> is, uh, is in the state of, hey, my CEO or senior leader told me that we need to be an AI first company and we need to go after machine and deep learning and I need to do that. Uh, but I don't know what to do. They'll, they'll never say I don't know what to do, but it's, you know, I, I don't know how to take the first step. So uh, there's a specific orientation that you're going to uh, engage with, uh, you know, a, a buyer like that, if you will. And then a second type of buyer is more in the R&D space, which is, you know, probably, you know, a, a CAO or CDO's uh, group where they know that they strategically have to go after this technology and they're very familiar with the frameworks and infrastructure and opportunities and they and they keep up with research and applied research and are so fascinated by what's going on. Um, but how that translates into the lines of business and what problems they're trying to tackle and how uh, is, a, is a little bit distant. And I should mention that that first buyer 
is, is very intimate about, you know, what's the business imperatives, what's the key challenges, where the investments have been, what are the capital investments, what are the budget constraints, uh, and who's doing what, okay? And the reality is you need to bring those two things together. And, and very rarely are you, do both of those exist in the same organization? Because if it did, then, you know, they wouldn't need folks like us, right? They would be driving success on their own. So, um, you know, typically what happens for, um, for each one of those buyers is something that looks like a diagnostic that says, hey, let's try to understand, you know, what are, the, what are the capabilities that you have today and what does that look like in terms of sort of a maturity level? Uh, and, you know, it, it's sort of, uh, you know, you're going to need, let's say, these seven or eight things. And let's walk through and, and understand and assess how strong or, you know, weak those, those capabilities are. And then, you know, the second part of that, once you have that sort of baseline understanding, you want to be able to tackle a high value problem. And so uh, there's many ways to do that. You know, you can interview uh, different folks in the business. You can look at uh, 10Ks and derive or, or strategy documents and, and, and understand wh where the, the key efforts and opportunities are. But um, ultimately, you have to understand if deep learning is going to help solve this problem. And so, you know, in the areas of video or imagery or natural language understanding and what have you, clearly there's, you know, areas that, you know, machine and deep learning can be applied. And then, you know, through that sort of diagnostic, you're going to understand, do you have all the data assets uh, in full fidelity to be able to do that? Do you have access to infrastructure, whether that's uh, in the data center or on cloud? Do you have talent that can be able to build and, and harvest, uh, what have you? Now, now, one thing I didn't mention, and I should have mentioned on the onset, it really matters in the acquisition strategy of how you want to acquire these capabilities. And what I mean by that is you could go buy it. And, and you mentioned that in terms of SaaS APIs or SaaS providers. And that's a very low risk um, approach, but the reality is, is that it, it's fairly inflexible and it's not necessarily game changing because you know all of your competitors most likely have access to that same SaaS API or SaaS provider. So if you want to buy capabilities like that, you know, there's a certain approach for that. If you want to build capabilities, which obviously higher investment, higher, uh, higher cost, but higher risk, but the opportunity, it can be high impact and game changing. And so, you know, uh, there's definitely a spec and then, you know, there's probably, there's definitely something in between more of a integrate sort of model. And so, you very quickly understand um, what the organization is trying to do, whether it's build, integrate, or buy, and then you tailor kind of a, a plan and approach of how to do that in a very incremental and value-oriented type of way. How pronounced is the talent shortage of people that are um, up on these techniques? I mean, because we hear, you know, that it's, it's kind of like pro sports level salaries and it's huge competition, a huge amount of competition for 
the most qualified people and that a few large companies are have most of the talent locked up. Is all of that true or is it changing? What's your experience? Um, I, I think I think there's some truth to that, and I think it's changing. Um, and um, you know what what's kind of occurring is yes, there's a uh, there's a density of talent that's that's uh, being consumed by let's say the digital giants, um, and a, a lot of those companies, as we know, are really companies rooted in advertising, and so um, they can do all of these adjacent innovations and be creative because what's keeping the lights on is, is something fundamentally different. So uh, there's a, there's a great deal of creativity that can be applied and, and pretty interesting innovations. Now in an enterprise setting, you you have a distinct initiative objective and you have to work within the constraints of the organization. No doubt you can be creative, but um, in order to bring talent into that environment, you have to have um, you have to have a lot of things in place. Number one, to attract that talent and retain it. And so, um, where where organizations and enterprises are now is um, a lot of them have started up, you know, their ventures group or their innovation group, and have a presence in all of the tech hubs uh, in the Bay Area, um, in, in Boston, and you know, various places across the U.S. and various places across the world. And so that's their mechanism for tapping into that talent. Um, but as you said, you know, the compensation models are very different. So in these Bay Area companies, they're highly leveraged um, models, which means, you know, uh, accrued equity with, you know, stock grants and what have you. And a lot of the, the enterprises out there, you know, more of it, that compensation package looks very different and so they have to fundamentally rethink the way that they attract talent and retain it and compensate them uh, and give them an environment that uh, gets them excited to come to work every day and solve, you know, hard problems that they're tackling. I, I had this theory that if, if everything we knew about AI were frozen and there were no breakthroughs, nothing, that it would still take us a decade or, or more, two decades, to apply what we know now universally throughout the whole economy. Do you, does that have a, a ring of truth to you, to it? It does. I mean, in the sense of, you know, when we, when we think about um, how data and analytics oriented um, all of the premier companies out, out are out there. We assume that they're so very fluent. Their leaders are completely in tune. They're investing in the right ways, and um, and they have um, you know these foundational capabilities that are very robust, and they're building upon it. And and you know the reality is is, is it's mixed. Okay, there's there's um, you know, groups within those organizations that are very successful, uh, but there's invariably culture kind of uh, aspects and technology types of aspects and other operating model aspects, funding aspects that all get in the way of being able to always do, you know, the most uh, innovative things at the right time. And so 
I agree with you in the sense of if we just pushed pause and we didn't advance as a community in AI, we could probably still go 15 years to allow a lot of the organizations to really catch up, uh, invest and, and build these capabilities that, you know, I, I would agree with that 100%. I tried once. To, so the world GDP, or I guess it isn't the D, it's a gross world product. The, the sum total of the GNP of every country is in, in really rough terms, a hundred trillion dollars. And, and the, and the, the value of everything on the planet is about 400 trillion. And I once sat down to try to figure out of that 400 trillion, how much wealth was created by the internet. Um, because, you know, it, it gave us, it gave us Google and Etsy and Amazon and eBay and uh, Airbnb and all of that. But it also gave us a million small businesses and it, it helped, you know, it did all of these things. And, and it's, it's kind of a really hard question to answer, but I came up with like $25 trillion worth of wealth has been created by the internet. And when I think about that, you know, the, the consumer internet, the web is 25 years old. And so in 25 years, just by connecting computers together with a common protocol so they could communicate, and it's just better communication, we created this enormous amount of wealth. Would you feel like if that AI is going to create multiples of that? Is AI like as big as the internet in terms of economic impact, or is it twice as, or 10x, or half as much? Do you have any kind of a gut feel of that, of the economic impact of these technologies? Um, I'm not sure. And, and the reason why I say that is because even when I think about the valuations of, of companies today, um, it, it's really predicated on, you know, cash flows in the future and, you know, anticipating what that looks like. Um, when I think of AI, we're, we're really at, at the beginning of understanding w what we can do with with these different types of technologies and approaches. And, um, and that's going to unlock, you know, obviously high value companies that um, are able to monetize that in new and creative ways. And so the wealth that that will generate, again, for me is, is difficult to ascertain because um, there's just, there's so much um, volatility and potentially which way we could go and, and what that's going to look like. But it, it is going to be transformational in the sense of just like how digitization and, and the internet, as you put it, is, uh, ha has really changed the way we work and operate and live our lives. I think AI is going to do something very similar. And it's going to affect all, you know, our everyday lives as consumers and citizens and as employees and workers and providers of different services and products. You know, I think it's going to touch every aspect of our lives. Yeah, because, you know, if you just say something like every business on the planet can be 10% better if they intelligently apply technology to data and, and listen to it. And if that were true, then you say, wow, on a $100 trillion world economy, that's $10 trillion of increased, call it profitability, and then you can put whatever multiple on that you want and that doesn't account for anything new, anything amazing. It just says, we live in such an, a poorly optimized world that 
it's kind of like the sky's the limit. I only ask because you're closer to it because this is what this is your bread and butter. So are you overall optimistic or pessimistic about the impact of this technology on society as a whole, moving the lens out from the enterprise, its impact on when you add up its impact on unemployment, on uh, health, on warfare, on everything else, when you net it all out, is this a good for humans or bad for humans? Uh, I'm definitely an optimist uh, and that th this is good for all of us. Um, before we leave the, the last topic, I, I will say, you know, what's going to enable all of those enterprises, let's say, to be 10% more efficient um, is, you know, the barrier to entry. If that barrier to entry is, is, is continues to lower, then, of course, that opportunity becomes uh, more real. I, I think what the threat is, and what AI can potentially pose to us is sort of this winner-take-all proposition in which, you know, companies that can harness this technology, invest in it, and really drive incredible innovations um, very rapidly. A lot of the competitors or other providers out there uh, will get left behind very quickly. And so you'll have this consolidation of a, of a great deal of um, you know, capability and understanding in the hands of a few. Uh, and, and when I say a few, it doesn't mean a few individuals. It could be a, a few corporations, a, you know, a few industries or, or, or what have you. And so, um, you know, I think, I think that's going to, if we can ensure equities and remain balanced where everyone feels that they still have Opportunity, either as an as an individual, as a society, um, as as an enterprise, and then I'll think, and then I think we'll continue to thrive when it becomes very, let's say, asymmetric, and um, you know, there's distinct haves and have-nots, and and that disparity is growing bigger. Uh, wealth being being one of them, then I think um, it, it'll be met with challenges, and that uh, other implications will will come into play all right i'm with that and but but you you began that whole thing by saying you're an optimist so how do you think it's all going to play out yeah so i mean i, I think um the value and potential uh of applying essentially math at scale uh it's but it's been done in the sciences so if i if i go back to my undergrad you know um, when we all learn, you know, um, math, well, not all of us have learned math and physics, but, you know, when we can understand and express natural phenomenon um, using uh, science and math and technology, uh, obviously there's a, there's a great deal to benefit there. Um, where I see the, the same occurring, you know, let's say in an enterprise setting, we're essentially applying math at scale. Um, and, and now we have the computation and framework to do that in, in much easier ways. Uh, no one would argue that that's the right thing to do. So I, I'm definitely an optimist that it's going to better the lives of, of all of us globally. Uh, but again, I, I think um, if, if my time in the intelligence community taught me anything is that um, there will always be actors that will try to exploit it for other purposes. And so 
always being mindful of that um, sooner rather than later, I think is going to benefit um, all of us. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. I want to thank you for a, a far ranging and uh, fascinating conversation. I appreciate it and enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.